Welcome to the audio ministry of Grove Park Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina. We pray you will be blessed by today's message. Good morning. As Roger said, my name is Hunter Joplin, and I am an English teacher at Alamance Christian School in Graham. Every Thursday, we hold chapel services in the morning, and I play bass guitar in our school's praise band. However, in addition to playing, I was also asked to deliver a sermon on the morning of April 15th. Naturally, I chose to theme my sermon on the topic of music, which the French poet Alphonse de Lamartine called the literature of the heart. Pastor Mark has asked me to deliver that same sermon to my home church in Grove Park, and I am sincerely honored to do so. I must warn you, though, I am the most obnoxious kind of English teacher. The home verse of this sermon is in Luke, but I am also going to quote liberally from the Psalms, 1 Corinthians, and Romans, and also refer to verses in Ephesians and Colossians. As is my nature, I do expect you to follow along, but if you can't flip pages quickly, then please listen closely. To quote Briscoe Darlin Jr., just jump in where you can and hang on. Let us pray. Lord God, please bless the words that I give today. May they be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Christ, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. May I kindly get a Bible. May I kindly have a Bible. Thank you, sir. Like I said, I am going to quote, so be good to read. Give me one moment. Thank you much. Question. What makes a song holy? What makes a song holy? That may be a strange question, but it may be an important one as well. We all play music to a certain extent. We do. If you can sing or play a note, then you can, in fact, play music. Yeah, even you. And, of course, we all listen to music as well. We did so just a few minutes ago. To quote George MacDonald, heaven is a place where all that is not music is silence. Clearly, we are all involved in this question. So what makes a song holy? Is it the instruments? Do certain instruments make a song holy? First, we must learn that, although the church has almost always involved music in our worship services, the instruments themselves have never been consistent. The early church inherited a form of a cappella singing called antiphony from the Jewish synagogues. Antiphony functions as a kind of group chanting in which the congregation takes psalms or verses from scripture and sings them like a refrain, like, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy. Something like that, right? A group chant. Antiphony. Antiphony may be what the Apostle Paul had in mind when in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, he demands that his fellow believers be full of the Spirit and sing psalms of praise. For most of the church's history, however, the human voice was the only instrument that Christians had access to. This was partly an economic matter. 
as crafted instruments, such as strings and drums, were not mass-produced at the time and had to be made by hand. Furthermore, certain church fathers argued that crafted instruments were too crude to be used in worship, and that Christians should not even know how to play such a thing. For these reasons and more, crafted instruments, such as the pipe organ or piano, were not introduced into church services until the 7th century, and modern instruments, such as the bass or djembe, were unthinkable until very recently. Crucially, the Bible suggests that crafted instruments have always been acceptable to worship. Let us read Book of Psalm chapter 144 through 511 together. In the Book of Psalms 144, 511, it says, Part your heavens, Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemy. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of aliens, whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I will sing a new song to you, my God. On the ten-stringed lyre I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David from the deadly sword. Deliver me, rescue me from the hands of aliens whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Aha! So David not only knew how to play a harp, but uses that harp to reflect God's own glory. Notice how God's power and David's harp are juxtaposed as complementary, not contradictory. Psalm 150 goes even further. In Psalm 150, it says the following. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In this, the grand finale of the Psalms, we see trumpets, lutes, harps, tambourine, stringed instruments, pipe organs, and all manner of symbols used to represent God's mighty deeds and excellent greatness. Apparently, even dancing is acceptable to God. When's the last time you saw dancing in this church? If you wanted to dance, would we even let you? Once again, we see that crafted instruments are complementary to God. And had this psalm been written in the 21st century, it is not a stretch to imagine keyboards, mandolins, banjos, and even 808 drums and turntables included in this litany. Apparently, all instruments can be used to praise God, including the human voice. If it can make a joyful noise, God would not deny it from his orchestra. Apparently, Instruments are not inherently an impediment to worship. So what makes a song holy? Is it the composition of that song? Perhaps songs can be written in a way that makes them holy. And if this pattern isn't followed, then that makes a song unholy. Admittedly, I'm not the best person to explore this idea. I'm not a music major after all. 
However, I can say with certainty that almost any song you've ever heard in a church roughly follows the same pattern. Turn to any song from a hymnal, no matter its age, and that song will likely start with a verse, followed by a refrain or chorus, and then repeat that pattern until it ends. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, etc. Some modern songs include things like bridges and outros, but the basic structure remains intact. Some songs have no choruses, and some songs are designed to build up to a point of ecstasy, release, and then fade out. Regardless, 99% of every hymn ever written or any song put to music follows roughly the same pattern, which is the same pattern used by 99% of every contemporary Christian pop song and 99% of every secular pop song ever written, unless you are an avant-garde noise musician or an auteur trying to break the rules entirely, you're probably going to write a song using the same pattern that everyone else uses. Is this a bad thing? By no means. For as long as the church has had musicians, they have always welcomed the people's participation in worship. And the best way to ensure that participation is to play songs that are easy to follow and remember. Every member of a congregation, from the youngest to the oldest, should be able to join in and sing together. And every musician should be capable of playing something that serves the song. Like I said, we all can play music. Furthermore, this basic song structure I've described is a practical way to guide people's emotions while worshiping and for people to feel that they are following a story as they sing and play along. Apparently, a song's composition is no impediment to worship. Does a song's genre make it holy? No. Because as we've discussed, a genre of music is largely dependent on its instruments, and all instruments have the potential to make compelling, worshipful music. Furthermore, holy music does not need to sound pleasant or nice either. If I wasn't such a hardcore fan of Christ-conscious rap and metal artists as a kid, I wouldn't be standing here right now. Genre is a fluid and changeable thing, and that is no impediment to worship. Does a song's quality make it holy. No, because as we've discussed, most songs intended for a large audience follow roughly the same patterns, and what makes a song good or bad depends largely on subjective, you know, personal criteria. That's why it's possible for some Christians to love gospel music and hate Christian contemporary, or vice versa. Quality is largely a matter of one's own culture and tastes acquired through memory and is no impediment to worship. Yeah, well, maybe all worship songs are just awful and none of them are worth singing. Is that possible? Is it possible that every holy song ever written from the early church to the Latin masses to black gospel and Hillsong United is boring to the point of inanity? Is perfection possible? Well, if you've come at me this far, follow me down this rabbit hole. If I wanted to, I could spend all my time and energy composing the perfect holy song. The school board could pay me to take a year off from teaching, and I'd spend all my time on research and development. 
For instruments and genre, I could open my song with an antiphonal chant reminiscent of the early church, and then gradually introduce new instruments from different eras of the church's development into each new section, concluding in a climactic finale full of instruments created specifically for this song. The song's composition would be airtight. Every section would flow immediately into the nets with no contradiction between sections, and every section would be composed so precisely that a critic wouldn't dare disparage it. For lyrics, I could daisy-chain the aphorisms of Jesus into the declamatory style of the Psalms and divine God's personal approval of every single word. With the sheet music created, I could teach the song to the choir and bring in new ones to flesh out the band and orchestra because I would need those too. I could give all of you the lyrics beforehand and allow you to study those lyrics with a click track several weeks ahead of time so you would all know exactly how to sing it and on what tempo. Finally, we all would meet in this room one beautiful Sunday morning ready to sing the world's greatest worship song. The lights would go down. The band and orchestra would kick in. We all would sing and maybe that that would finally make perfect music, right? No. No, it would not. Not at all. My original question was a red herring, a fake question, meant to distract us from the real question. The real question is not what makes a song holy. Instead, the real question is, what makes us holy? What makes you and I holy? You see, so many of the things that we take worship to be, its lyrics, its genre, its style, are all secondary. Yes, even lyrics are secondary or unnecessary to worship. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and you probably know this one already. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Here, worship is an expression of the heart meaning that the only thing that can truly glorify God is a person willing to do so. Everything else is secondary. True worship is not defined by the things of this earth that shall pass away. It is defined by love, by the love a person feels for God and their own means of expressing that love honestly. Love is the measure of a holy person and a holy song, nothing less. This brings me to the final falsehood of worship I wish to dismantle, namely, that you must be talented to worship God. Maybe certain persons are more capable 
of worship than others, and less talented persons are unworthy. Granted, anyone can sing, but not everyone can sing especially well, and not everyone has a beautiful voice. As for me, well, I can play bass well if I have sheet music to read, but I'm terrible at remembering chord changes, and I only know the most rudimentary scales. I'm a better singer than a bassist, but I often run out of breath in weird places and forget the words even if they're on screen. If I had a dollar for every time I bungled a note while singing or tried to sing in a register I couldn't quite reach, I'd have enough cash to pay someone else to sing for me. Clearly, I'm not the best, most talented musician. Certainly not the best speaker and hardly a preacher. I'm probably not good enough to worship God. Perhaps no one is. But hold on. Does the Bible discriminate between musicians or exclude people from playing based on ability? Let's read Psalm chapter 100 together. For in Psalm chapter 100, it states this. No, it screams this. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Notice the implicit inclusivity of the psalm. All the earth is summoned to worship God. Not some parts of the earth, all of it. By reading the psalm, we notice as well the Psalter's use of universal pronouns. It is he who made us and we are his. Clearly, no one is denied the chance to sing and play music for God, and no one will be turned away. This pattern of inclusivity and universality is consistent throughout the Psalms and is perhaps the distinguishing feature of the kingdom of God as revealed in Christ's parables and beatitudes. During his time on earth, Christ made it perfectly clear that everyone is invited to take part in his kingdom. And the only impediment to being there is your willingness to be there. Let's read Luke chapter 14. We'll read verses 7 through 11 and then 16 through 24. And this is our home verse for today. Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, hey, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, rather, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He tells another parable. 
in that same chapter, 16 through 24, Jesus says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, Ugh, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, Ugh, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, Ugh, I've just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Well, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After doing this, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, Well, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. When we read these parables and the Psalms in concert, an essential truth about the kingdom of God is revealed. When Christ calls us to enter the kingdom, he really does call every single one of us. Yes, even me, even you, even the people you hate. Especially the people you hate. Let there be no mistake about that. If there's any person you think unworthy of God's grace, any person or group you would call an enemy, or unclean, you can guarantee they'll be first chair in the orchestra. Don't think for a moment that your good works make you more deserving, or that you are the model of an acceptable Christian, or that you can close the doors of the church and condemn people for not seeing Christ the way you would want them to. Likewise, do not think that you have better things to do than to worship God or that your relative lack of talent or experience or whatever it is sets you apart for something else. There are no outsiders here. I'm not talking about Grove Park. This place is nice, but it will pass away. I'm talking about the kingdom. The kingdom that is within and among us everywhere. Here, there are no outsiders, and no one is turned away. Here, it is not what you bring to the table, but that you came to the table. Here, talent or worthiness is no impediment to worshiping Christ. Indeed, if the Apostle Paul of the book of Romans is to be believed, then there is no impediment whatsoever to worshiping Christ. No restrictions of form or content. No denial of persons or ability. Nothing within and nothing beyond constrains us from the joy that is possible in worship. And to worship freely is true freedom. To quote the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 35 and 37 through 39. In the book of Romans, Chapter 8, verse 31, we see this. What then shall we say in response to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. For Christ has died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you have the opportunity to worship, I pray that you take it. Don't try to worship the way you think you should or the way you've been told. Instead, worship the way you would worship God if he were here with you now. Because he is with you now, forever and always. And this is the kingdom of God. In love, there is no fear. And thus... No shame. I love you all. Please pray with me. Lord God, we pray that these words would be on our hearts. We pray that these words have been acceptable to you. We pray that you would guide us, show us, and teach us how to act on these things. Teach us how to love in a way that is not generic or conventional, but that is radical and true. Teach us to love the way that Jesus has loved us and let our worship be that love. And let us always, always invite people to join us. You want us all. Let us all come. Let us all sing. Let us all be silent in your power and your grace and your love. We pray all this in the name of Christ, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please note our schedule has been revised as of April 2021. Please join us on Sunday mornings for worship at 10 o'clock in the sanctuary at 108 Trail 1 in Burlington or on Facebook Live. For more information and resources regarding our church, please visit groveparkchurch.net. And remember, grace abound.